0: We typically read whatever portion of God's word um, we are going to preach first before the sermon begins. Um, We're not going to do that this morning, but I want to remind you real quickly why we normally do that. Um, We do that because we want to be very clear that the word of God is of a different caliber entirely than the words that I speak as a preacher. Now, if I'm a faithful preacher, whose word am I communicating? God's word, right? But when God's word is being read, those are the most important words we hear in a morning. Um, so up to that, and I'm, I'm grateful for the scripture readers that serve us in that way. But as we jump into Titus, I want to um, think about a few things with you and give you a little bit of background before we just plow in. So that's why this is going to be a bit different. What One of the the more common criticisms... Of Christian churches, books, or positions, is that they are legalistic. You ever heard that? Ever felt that? We're we're not exactly sure what that word means. I think. Uh, but we know it when we see it, or more accurately, we we know it when we feel it. We think. Um, if if something feels too strict or too hard, or does it support what I want to do, or, or emphasizes obedience more than acceptance? Well, that's legalistic. But why is legalism bad? Well, because Jesus is all about grace. He's all about accepting people just the way we are, no agenda for change. If, if something feels kind and understanding and accepting, that must be the gracious thing Jesus would do. If something feels unyielding and difficult and hard, that's the legalism the Pharisees promoted. We, we love to label things as, as legalism. But friends, the, the perspective I just described is a tremendous problem. There were some true things in there, but a lot of problem <laughs> Because it really gets both legalism and grace completely wrong. Okay, so listen carefully. What is legalism? This thing we bandy about and label all kinds of stuff we don't like with. What is it actually? Legalism is trying to earn love or favor from God through obedience to God. That's what legalism is. What's grace? God's undeserved favor poured out through Jesus Christ that produces a people who are zealous for good works. So notice legalism has nothing to do with whether something feels hard or requires careful obedience. And grace is not about telling people they're okay just the way they are. Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared What is grace? What's it all about? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself... A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think there are a lot of lot of people, even a lot of Christians, that think of grace and good works as opposites. You might not say that, but functionally they, they feel like that. They sit like that in your heart. We we like the idea of relating to God on the basis of grace, but but the moment someone emphasizes the importance of works, all our legalism alarms start going off. Maybe you've experienced that. Friend, listen listen very carefully to me, okay? Because this might be the most important thing you take away from the entire series of the book of Titus. In the kingdom of God, grace is, And good works are not spiritual enemies. They're not opposites. They are inseparable twins. You cannot disconnect them. We are saved by grace and we are saved for good works. That's Titus in a paragraph. And that's why I'm really excited to spend seven weeks in this book. We're going to call this series Zealous for Good Works because where grace is present, good works follow. And where good works are absent, grace is missing in action. Paul's letter to Titus helps explain that connection because I think maybe you would say, okay, Matthew, I've, I've never pitted them against each other, but. I, I don't always understand how are they connected. I, I believe in grace. I'm not going to diss good works. I'm on board with both those things. But but it feels like two entirely separate things that are not impacting one another. I, I've felt that at different points in my life. This is why Titus is so helpful. Paul's going to show us how the, the gospel of grace actually creates and produces a people that are zealous for good works. How how grace produces good works such that a life of godliness, a life of obedience, is actually a tremendous joy and not a crushing burden. That's what grace does. So here's a little bit about Titus, okay? Titus, if you're not familiar with him, this is Paul's letter to a man named Titus. Um, He was an apostolic delegate, which just means a, a coworker, of the Apostle Paul in the first century. He, he spent most of his ministry life caring for Gentile churches that Paul had planted. And he, he actually labored with Paul from the very beginning of his first missionary journey. And he became a dear friend and a partner in ministry. Um, he also served in some really difficult church settings. Um, church life is not just all smooth sailing. Why not? Well, quite simply, because at the moment you get a couple hundred sinners, saved by grace, but still struggling with sin, in the same place and we're seeking to do life together, that's going to be messy, right? It was was messy in the first century. It's messy today. But Titus worked in some especially difficult places, including the church in Corinth. And in the mid-60s, we find Titus on the island of Crete. If you look at Titus 1 verse 5, Paul left him there, quote, so that you, Titus, might put what remained into order. Into order. Um, basically, false teachers were threatening the purity of the church in Crete. Uh, they, they profess to know God, Paul says in verse 16, chapter 1, but these teachers deny him through their works because they're unfit for any good work. And, and we don't know all the wrong things they were teaching, okay? But we do know that these false teachers were were leading people away from the truth, and one of the main ways they were doing that was by undermining the biblical foundation for good works. They were pulling that foundation out. They were taking that away. So Paul charges Titus, look at chapter 2, verse 1. To what? To teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus, teach the churches in Crete what accords with sound doctrine. Mind you, not so they could pat themselves on the back and say, we have this amazing, perfect statement of faith. We've got it now. Check the biblical knowledge box. No, no. But so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, chapter 2, verse 10. By what? Devoting themselves to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's basic point is that where, where sound doctrine is present, good works will follow. Where false doctrine takes root, good works will die said differently, believing the gospel of grace and living a life characterized by good works, by godliness, they go hand in hand. They can't be separated. Why not? Because the grace that saves us is the grace that trains us. The grace that redeems us is the grace that that purifies us. God's behind both of those graces. He's in both of those graces. He's The goal of both of those graces. And so to be studying Titus really is to be confronted by a a God-centered, grace-saturated view of Christian life and ministry. It's the kind of of life and ministry that that Paul modeled and taught. It's the kind of life and ministry that, that he's charging Titus to model and teach. Frankly, friends, it's the kind of life and ministry God calls us to embrace today. And that is precisely where Paul begins in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace. From God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. That is the word of the Lord, Father, would you bless now this preaching of your holy word, I pray. Amen. Kingsway, these, in these verses in short, the Lord calls us to a radically God-centered view of Christian life and ministry where cherishing the gospel of grace makes us zealous for good works. It can be hard to see in the introduction, where's all that coming from? But, but Paul helps us here in a wonderful way by using the example of his own life to show us what a God-centered life and ministry looks like. And he's, he's urging us from the very beginning to embrace at least three things. What, what's this God-centered life and ministry look like? Includes at least three things, okay? And here's where we're going to go in this message. First, an identity rooted in relationship with God. Second, a mission that's accomplished through the Word of God. And third, a strength derived from the grace of God. That's what a God-centered life and ministry looks like. So let's let's start with point number one, an identity rooted in relationship with God. And we are just camping out here on the first half. Of verse 1. Yes, we're going to go a little slower than we did in Deuteronomy. So the, I think the way Paul identifies himself at the very beginning of the letter is really provoking to say the least. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God. Servant of God. He's not talking here about being someone who is. Generally helpful to God. That's how that's we can think of servant, right? He's, he's actually talking about being owned by God. That, that's the Greek word we translate servant that, that means slave or bondservant. So when Paul wishes to identify himself, when, when the who am I question comes to the Apostle Paul's mind, what's his first answer? Who am I? I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. His past was not the heart of his identity. His vocational success was not the heart of his identity. How how other people thought about him or how other people evaluated him was not the heart of his identity. What's the heart of Paul's identity? His relationship to God as a slave of God. That's the heart of his sense of self, his identity. Listen to how Murray Harris describes this. A slave is someone whose person and service wholly belong to another. As Christ purchased possession, the Christian is wholly devoted to the person of the master. As Christ's movable property, the Christian is totally available for the master's use. This complete devotion to Christ includes three elements. Humble submission to the person of Jesus, unquestioning obedience to the master's will, and an exclusive preoccupation With pleasing Christ. This, he writes, was Paul's magnificent obsession. Friend, what would the people that know you best say you're obsessed with? What are you most passionate about? What what gives what makes you more excited? to be busy doing, than anything else in your life. Whatever that is, is your chosen source of identity, more often than not. Humble submission, unquestioning obedience, exclusive preoccupation with pleasing Christ. That is the identity God calls us to. And here's the paradox, frankly. Only in becoming a slave of Christ, only in in laying down your life for the one who laid down his life for you, will you actually find true freedom and true joy. It it feels, what's it feel like? It feels like joy is waiting for those who serve themselves. What do I want to do? What do I feel like having? But but that's never enough, is it? You'll, you'll always want more stuff, more, more approval, more success. You'll, you'll end up envying people that have more than you and looking down on people that have less than you. And neither of those paths leads to joy. <laughs> Only being, becoming a, a servant of God will give you a stable identity, friend. A life-giving identity that nothing in this world can threaten or take away. A a God-centered life begins with an identity rooted in God. You are his bondservant. You are Christ's slave. You do not exist, Christian, fundamentally to serve your company, your clients, your boyfriend, (laughs) your spouse, your kids, or even your church. You exist to please God. God alone. And our sense of self has to start with him. That's crucial. But as God's servants, what what are we charged to do here? Paul doesn't stop with Paul a servant of God. What does he say next? Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What, what are God's servants charged to do? Well, we're charged with the very same thing that the Lord charged the Apostle Paul with. We are sent ones, literally translated. Not, not in the apostolic sense, I'm not saying that. As, as Paul was. We're not commissioned to write scripture as eyewitnesses of Jesus, but. But we are sent ones in the sense that we've been entrusted and sent out with the good news of the gospel. The same gospel that the Lord entrusted Paul with. This idea, please listen carefully here, this idea that your primary job as a Christian is to hunker down, circle the wagons, avoid all the evil in this world, hide hide your wife and your children behind your garage door and just hold on (laughs) until Jesus comes back is the definition of unfaithfulness. Why? Because we're not just servants. We're sent servants. Does that make sense? We're sent servants. John 21, 21, as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, what? Even so, I am sending you. Sending us to do what, Jesus? Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples. Introduce people to me. Teach them how to follow me. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Why? Because we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. If if an ambassador of the United States is entrusted with a message by the president of the United States and he flies to that foreign country and puts it under his pillow and sleeps on it, is that a faithful ambassador? No. No, because he's not just a servant. he's He's a sent servant. He's been entrusted with a message. As the risen Christ sent Paul out as an apostle of the Gentiles, Christian, so too he has sent you. And that means something. That, that means that we don't wait for opportunities. Can I, can I go here for just a minute? Because I, I think this language gets us in trouble. Um, we, we can have an attitude. I know I'm a sent one, and so, you know, if at any point in my day, some random person comes up to me and is like, hey, can you tell me more about Jesus? I'll do my best to say something, Lord. I really will. (laughs) But, you know, it's been five years and and no random people have ever yet intercepted me as I walk from my car into my garage. I, I guess I'll just keep praying on mission week. And, you know, it's just like, whoa, wait a minute. Is that what being a sent one actually looks like? Just waiting for opportunities? Not, friend. We were are sent in the sense that we're called to move toward people who presently serve a different master. Like Paul did. What, what's that mean? Lingering when you run into them in the parking lot of your apartment complex? Or inviting them to walk your dog with you? Or playing basketball together? Or making a meal for them and inviting them over to dinner, or finding out what's going on in their life, or when you're both standing on the sideline, kind of awkwardly close to each other, but you're all watching your kids play soccer, and, you know, it's a water break, or halftime, you you engage them in conversation. You don't, you don't just pull out your phone and be myself and I. Does that make sense? Because, because we're a sent one. We also move toward people who have the same master that we do. What's that look like? Well, don't wait for opportunities to, to do spiritual good to fellow members of your church. Create them, pursue them. Take a, take a married couple out for lunch, even if you're a single adult. You ever done that? And ask them how you can pray for their marriage. Yes, in the kingdom of God, you don't have to be in someone's same season of life to do incredible spiritual good to them. Praise God for that. Or bring a single with you. When you take your grandkids to a flying squirrels game. And don't sit them down and say, who are you dating? (laughs) Okay? Ask them, where do you most feel your need for God's help in your life right now? And then encourage them and expect God to use them to encourage you. We're, We're sent servants. What's that mean? We move toward those who don't have the same master. And we move toward those who have the same master. But we're moving, we're initiating, we're not just waiting. It's an honor, friends, to be sent servants. I love how Murray Harris concludes. He he writes, listen to this. There can be no higher or more ennobling privilege than to have the Lord of the universe as one's owner and master and to be his accredited representative on earth. Amen. A God-centered life ministry. What's it mean? What starts with what? Embracing an identity that comes from our relationship to God. That's where we start. Here's the second thing it means, okay? And this is a little bit of a longer point because Paul spends most of his time on this. This is actually, next to Romans, the longest introduction of all Paul's letters. So what's the second thing we need to embrace? A mission accomplished by the word of God. We start with an identity that comes from relationship to God or with God. And having received that identity, what do we then do? We embrace a mission that's accomplished by the word of God. So let's break that down under two headings, okay? Lest we get lost in all of these commas that begin to pile up very quickly. So first, it's very simply, what is the mission? And then we're going to ask and answer, how is it accomplished? Okay, so first, what what is this mission? As as sent servants, what are we laboring for with those who know Jesus and those who don't? Well, Paul Paul gives us a number of goals here. Think of these as three discipleship goals. This is what the mission's about, okay? First, like Paul, we labor. What does he say in verse 1? We labor for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. What, what's he talking about? Well, certainly in Deuteronomy we saw this. God, God chose the people of Israel for himself under the Old Covenant, right? And he's, he's still in the business of drawing a people to himself today. But not from a, a, a crowd of, of raised hands, adoring fans who, who are all begging to know him. But from sinners who are spiritually dead. Who want nothing to do with him. Without God and without hope in the world. When Paul speaks of the elect of God, he's, he's not saying the elect are chosen because God somehow peered down the tunnel of time. And, and saw who would respond to him if he made them an offer. That's not all what he's saying. The the elector chosen, why? Because God in his loveliness set his affection on the unlovely that he might make them lovely. It's God's design. It's God's will. It's God's plan. And, And having resolved to choose a people, to call a people, what does he then do? He effectually opens our eyes to see our need for a savior and that Jesus is the savior we need. So to labor for the sake or for the faith of God's elect means what? Helping people who don't know Jesus come to a point where they trust Jesus. Brothers and sisters, please pray in 2024 that this year would not come to an end without the Lord giving you the privilege of leading at least one person to faith in Christ Jesus. If if a year, this year, could go by and you would not be disappointed at all, if you're being honest, with not being able to lead at least one person to faith in Jesus, something is wrong with our affections, with our desires. Pray for that. That that the mission God set before us to to work to labor like Paul for the sake of the faith of the elect, that that would grip your heart. And you can pray that with confidence. Why? Because the elect coming to faith is ultimately God's work. Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's some good news for you. Okay, ready? Here's the good news. You don't appoint anyone. (laughs) You never have, you never will. God appoints people. And, and it's his election, his calling, that's that's irrevocable. So so whether you're you're loving a room filled with snotty toddlers or you're you're answering questions from your teenager about why God is actually real, you can engage in that work. You you can contend for the faith of the elect. With confidence, Christian, grounded in the sovereign work and power and calling of God. That means something. That means that the cause in which you labor will ultimately succeed. Because it's God's sovereign work, not yours. Here's the second part of our mission. What is our mission? Like Paul, we also labor, he doesn't stop there, for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Please notice here an underlying presupposition that we do not have time to camp out on, but it is worth noting. Notice there is such a thing as truth. And we are able to know it. If you have questions about either of those, come and talk to me afterward. But for the sake of time, we have to move on. If if initial faith in Jesus is goal number one, A a growing knowledge of Jesus is goal number two in our mission. In in other words, please hear this. Our mission doesn't stop with just introducing people to Jesus. It it requires, it necessitates that, that we help one another grow in our understanding of who he is and the difference that makes in every part of our life. That's what discipleship requires in the church. Because knowledge of the truth about Jesus and the implications of that, it's not a one and done thing. You know, people talk about it like that sometimes. You know, back when I was eight, you know, I walked the aisle, I became a Christian, and I've, I've been good with God ever since. I got that knowledge, I got that Jesus, and, you know, I'm just grateful he's taken the wheel. Well, I trust he has friend, but realize according to Scripture, genuine faith in God always outs itself, leads to, produces, results in, gets legs in. You get the idea. Through what a, a lifelong growth in the knowledge of God, if it's genuine. It'll, it'll lead to a lifelong growth in the knowledge of God. How do we know that? First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, make every effort, that's strong, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. That's what Paul's contending for here, that, that a growing knowledge of Jesus is not one bit less important than your initial faith in Jesus. And, and where that truth about God is is increasingly known and believed it's producing something. Look back at verse 1. What's that? The truth which, what? Accords with godliness. Or leads to godliness. I, I have lived my entire life in the local church. That is a profound privilege. But I have noticed that Many of us, self-included, we, we can develop two mental lists as Christians. I will call them list A and list B. All right? List A is all the things we believe about God. God is great. God is good. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. It's all the stuff we believe about God. Okay? You, you got that list in your mind? All right, list B is all the things we're supposed to do and not do as Christians. Serve people, love people, flee sexual immorality, be generous with our money, pray without ceasing, delight in the word of God, share the word of God. List A, who God is. List B, what we're supposed to do and not do. And you know what I've observed? Many times, there are no connections between those two lists. They, they live in entirely separate lanes, entirely separate departments. It's like the one doesn't even know the other's there. It's, there's no connection. There's no vital life between them. What's the problem with that? Why is that a tragedy? Here's why, friend. Because in the kingdom of God, there's not one thing called truth And another thing called godliness, there there is only one thing and it's the truth that leads to godliness. The truth that accords with godliness. You cannot separate biblical truth from a life of godliness. Why not? Because there's not two things. There's one thing, the truth which accords with godliness. Notice that. What's Paul saying? That if the truth of the gospel is the root, godliness is the fruit. And it's only plants that, that have roots that are able to produce fruits. O- only when the, the truth of the gospel is increasingly known and believed and we're growing in our knowledge of Jesus, only then does godliness thrive and, and increase. So, so let me warn you as we, we dive into this book, Okay. Do not try to do something that you know Christians are supposed to do without first stopping to consider, wait a minute, what is it about who Jesus is or what he's done for me that makes this expression of godliness good and right and right? And possible. What am I asking in that question? I'm looking for the connection between A and B. Does that make sense? Who is it about, about who Jesus is? Let's say, what he's done for me. What is it about those things that makes this particular expression of godliness good and right? And and possible. I'll give you an illustration, okay? Say, say, list A, God is great, God is good, God is glorious. List B, flee sexual immorality. Well, actually, there's a connection. Many connections. (laughs) Here's one for you. Matthew 5, 8. The pure in heart shall see God. Who are the pure in heart? Those that have consecrated their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, not perfectly, but following him faithfully, been regenerated by the spirit. They're they're living to follow Jesus. They're seeking to delight in the Lord. They're fleeing sexual morality. Those are the men and women that will actually see that God is great and good and glorious. They're connected. We're going to see a lot of those in, in the book of Titus. You know, another good example might be uh, maybe you know, as a Christian, I, I shouldn't retaliate against my enemies. I should love my enemies. But have you ever ever actually stopped to ask why, I love asking why questions. Who is it about Jesus and what he's done for us? We're just going to keep asking this in the whole series. That, that makes, not retaliating, good and right and possible. Well, what is it? What's Romans 12? What's, what's the Lord say to us in Romans 12? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There's a connection. May God light those up over and over and over again. And if you're not sure how to make those, ask another believer or a pastor for help. If you reduce Christianity to a list of what's without understanding the why's, you won't grow. At least not very long. And and what growth you do feel like you're experiencing is is just going to be like taking an air gun and stapling fruit on a dead tree. (laughs) That's not going to work. Helping one another grow in the knowledge that leads to godliness is the second part of our mission. Okay, but here's, here's the third and final part, the third goal. Like Paul, look back at verse 2. We labor in hope of eternal life. The faith of God's elect, knowledge of the truth leading to godliness, and in hope of eternal life. The, the hope Paul refers to here is not Wishful thinking. That's how we tend to use the word hope, right? I hope it's going to snow this year because I'm really tired of not having at least one day where we get six to eight inches of snow. Who's with me on that? Yes, I just, I long for that. Last year was just such a disappointment. I'm hoping for that. Do I have a modicum of certainty that that's actually going to happen when I pulled up my weather this morning and I saw, oh, we're in the 60s next week? No, I mean, I'm hoping. I really am hoping, but it's sort of wishful thinking. That is not the hope Paul's talking about here. When Paul uses the word hope, hope of eternal life. He's speaking of confident expectation. Assurance of soul. He's convinced. Of what? That there's more to life than trying to make it through another day. Or leaving the world a better place than you found it friend there there is a life found in knowing God and enjoying God and being with God and loving God and being known by god that that's not just a beyond the grave thing for Christians but but is an in this life right now kind of thing too hope of eternal life that's that's not just in glory. That life through the the work of the Spirit has broken into the present age. It's already and not yet. That's that's where where biblical faith and knowledge of the truth are ultimately heading. If you want to think of it that way, they're they're not just good things, you know. Have faith, okay. (laughs) Grow in the knowledge of the truth, okay. Make sure it leads to godliness, okay. Repeat, have faith, grow in the knowledge. (laughs) Yes, do those things. But friend, do them remembering that they, they have a great and glorious goal. What's the goal? You, you are in all those things. You are running after eternal life because God has given you eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and that's why, frankly, our Christian identity as sent servants ultimately matters. Why, why does that ultimately matter? Because we're helping those whom God has sovereignly purposed to grant eternal life, we're helping them discover eternal life. That's a privilege. And, and we're helping those that, to whom God has already granted eternal life grow in their present experience of eternal life, even as we're waiting for the fullness of that in heaven. I, I love how Jesus combines all of this. Election, knowledge leading to godliness, Hope of eternal life listen john ten twenty seven my sheep called by God, chosen by God, known by God, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why not, First Corinthians two verse nine for no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That, that eternal hope, eternal life, that's why this is all of any value, my friends. That's why the mission matters. That's our, that's our confidence. That, that's why every act of sacrificial love is worth it. That, that's why all the time that, that you and I spend to to make disciples, all, all, the, all the money, all the emotional energy is worth it. That, that's why we don't stop killing sin and, and fighting for holiness and helping one another to do the same. Why do, why do we keep going? Why do we persevere? Because God has set nothing less than eternal life before us. That's why. That's the prize. That's the goal. That, that's why Christian mission matters. Why we refuse to lose heart. Richard Yarborough says it like this This future, eternal life, the future God promises, is more powerful in this fallen world than the seemingly intractable evil and setbacks that can easily darken church leaders' vision skew their judgment, and extinguish their hope. More powerful. Why? Because the hope of eternal life is not make-believe. It's not wishful thinking. Look back at verse 2. It's what God, who what? Who never, lies. You never lies. Promise before the ages begin. How how often, think about this, do we make promises we don't keep? Do you have, you have a list of that somewhere? All the promises in your life, things you've said you would do? I'll fix that. Hey, so you said you would, ooh. <laughs> we, we, we say we're going to do things and then we forget to do them. We, we say we're going to do things and then circumstances change and we can no longer do what we said we would do. We lie unintentionally, we lie intentionally, but we don't keep all our promises. God never lies because he cannot lie. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Quinn read this earlier. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? What, what a comfort that is, friend. What does what that promise you, Christian, that, that the hope of eternal life is not a possibility? It's a promise. It's a guarantee. We, we have a glorious mission that's upheld by the promise of a faithful God. That's what the mission looks like. So, how is it accomplished? That's what it is. How is it accomplished? Well, let's get at this this way, okay? As we prepare to land this plane. in Look back at verse 3. In what form or what kind of way Does the promise of eternal life come to us? What does Paul say? Look at verse 3. It comes to us, what? In his word. In his word. In, In the form of a message. An announcement. An announcement of what, Pastor? An announcement, a happy announcement, that because of what Jesus has done for us, Sinners can come home to God. The announcement of the gospel, the good news. So how does that word, that that word of the gospel, then come to us? Keep your eyes on verse 3. God manifested the hope of eternal life and his word, as Paul says, through what? Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Please notice here that the word Paul uses for preaching in this verse is not a general word about speaking. It's a specific word. It's a unique word. And it's only used in the New Testament to describe the public proclamation of the gospel by an authorized representative. In other words, we're missing something really important. If we look at verse 3 and we just immediately say, oh, I get it, I get it. God accomplishes his mission as all of us speak the gospel just like Paul did. Is that true? Yeah. It actually is. I'm not not setting you up to, you thought it was, but it's not. No, it actually is. There's truth to that and and we'll get there very quickly here. But but that's not Paul's primary point at the end of verse 3. What we're all doing. That's not the initial means he points to as he reminds Titus how our mission will be accomplished. Where, where does he point? He points to the activity of preaching, to, to the unique role the public proclamation of God's word by an authorized representative plays in the advancement of God's kingdom. Why do I linger here? Because preaching has really fallen on hard times. In our in our day and age, people don't want to be talked to. Let alone by someone in a position of spiritual authority, behind a pulpit, like what I'm doing right now. <laughs> where a pastor speaks and the rest of us do what they say. We, we want conversation. We want pastors to, to walk on stage with a cup of coffee. <laughs> and pull up a chair. And and give us advice for how to live our best life now, like, you know, six suggestions for your marriage, eight ways to fight anxiety. You know, it's, we, we want that. We want some humor. We want some entertainment. We want someone that feels relatable, someone that says everything we want to hear and nothing we don't. We, we want a comfortable spiritual experience with, with excellent production values that, that fits nicely into our schedule and never remotely begins to stretch our attention span. there's only one problem with that. That sort of thing is not the means God has chosen to manifest his word. It's not what 2 Timothy 4.1 tells pastors to do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Friend, you realize that to accomplish his mission through his word, God has not chosen polished communicators. He has chosen weak preachers. He's chosen men who stand in the pulpit with fear and trembling. That's who Paul was. And, and while there are there important discontinuities, okay, between apostles who preached back then and pastors who are preaching today, the, the essential task is the same. What's the task? What's my task right now as I'm preaching the word of God? What's the calling? Declare the truth of God's word and only God's word and all of God's word and do it in a way that presses home the claim of God's word on the minds and hearts and wills of you as those who are listening. That's preaching. And it is the most important work that takes place every Sunday morning as this local church gathers. And I say that not to rebuke you, but to thank you for being a church that values preaching. And treasures preaching and is, is eager for preaching. It's the preaching is how God manifested the word of the gospel in the first century. And it remains his chosen means for manifesting his word today. So come, come eager for biblical preaching. Okay. Come, come expectant. Go to bed early enough the night before that you can stay awake. It's that practical, okay? And, and don't come wondering, I wonder what Matthew will say today. Come, come asking, Lord, what are you saying? I'm here to listen for your voice. If, if the word of the gospel Paul first preached is a word our pastors in this pulpit continue to preach, here's what we can know will happen. The elect will come to faith. If we receive the apostolic word as it's preached on Sunday and build one another up with the same word all during the week, here's what you can know will happen. We will grow in the knowledge of the truth that produces godliness. And as the preached word reverberates in our hearts and comes out of our mouths, what can you know will happen? We will obtain the hope of eternal life and help others to do the same. In other words, the proclamation of the apostolic word, especially through public preaching, is how the mission is accomplished. So it, so in all the work you do for the Lord, my friends, take care that, that your confidence doesn't lie in the power of your words, but in the power of God's word. I mean, yeah, Paul had work to do in seeing the mission accomplished. We do too. But, but it's ultimately a mission that God accomplishes through the power of his word. That, that doesn't make us passive. That makes us confident. What's a God-centered life and ministry require? An identity rooted in relationship with God, a mission accomplished by the word of God, and we'll end very quickly with this, a strength derived from the grace of God. Look at verse four. These aren't throwaways. Paul tells us in verse four that he's writing, to Titus, my true child. A common faith. It's not common because they're equally religious or equally into the spiritual realm. It's common because they have a shared confession, shared object of their faith. What's the object? The risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth in which Paul discipled Titus as a spiritual father. Teaching, training, caring for his his spiritual son in the faith. When he describes Titus as my true child, he's anticipating everything he's going to say in chapter 2 where he urges older men and women, talking to us, to be spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. He's talking about a culture of of gender-specific, intergenerational discipleship. We're going to linger on that in the coming weeks. But for right now, just look at the second half of verse 4. Because Paul's about to tell Titus to do some really hard stuff, some really difficult things. The opposition is real, the the stakes are high, the work is hard. But but before he goes there, he he wonderfully directs Titus and us to the source of all the strength we need to do the entire mission God set before us. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christian, do you know what you have that no angry client or lost bid? or disgruntled customer or bitter child can take away from you you have peace with god you have been reconciled to almighty god through the person and work of jesus christ and in that relationship what else do you have you have access to a river a waterfall of grace that God has stored up for you in Christ Jesus so much so that we can say with confidence, what, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You have peace with God. You have grace from God. All you need to embrace a God-given identity and be faithful in a God-given mission. Do not look to your own resources front as you've had into another week Look to the Lord. His grace is sufficient. It is abundant, and it will be enough. This whole book is going to call us to a God-centered view of Christian life and ministry. Here's how that begins with a what? An identity that's rooted in God. A mission that is accomplished by God. As we rely on a strength that comes from God. May that be what the Lord does in our hearts as we study this precious book. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way you call us to a wonderfully God-centered view of Christian life and ministry pray that you would direct our eyes to our identity in you, to the mission that you set before Paul and us, and especially, Lord, to the grace that you give that makes it possible. Thank you that there's nothing you call us to do, that you don't give us all the help we need to get it done. We love you. And we thank you, Lord, we anticipate you making lots of connections for us in this book between who you are, what you've done, and the life you've called us to live. Help with that, we pray, in Jesus' name.